From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by author and rabbi Gershon Shusterman. Rabbi Shusterman discusses how he handled the death of his first wife at 36 years old with 11 children, shares insights about how to deal with tragedy, and explains why it took him decades to write his book about his experiences. Also, Rabbi Brody reveals how he's doing on his Chumash and Rashi tests, plus the power of a hug. All this and more behind the Bima. Good evening. It is Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I'm Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined by my dear colleague and friend, Rabbi Joshua Brody. And we're here to take you behind the Bima. We're here to take you behind the Bima. Rabbi Brody, we've got a a very special behind the Bima, a little bit different. I mean, every behind the Bima is inspiring, wonderful, beautiful, but uh, this is a very serious conversation. Rabbi Schusterman, um, 36 years ago, his wife left that morning feeling healthy and well, and by the, that night when he put his 11 children to bed, they no longer had a mother. And how did he deal with that, react to that, overcome that? He uh, wrote a book, Only Now, all these years later, and we're going to have a conversation with him, how do you have faith after tragedy and much more. But first, Rabbi Brody, tell us what's going on in your life. Well, I'm actually uh, on Google right now looking at news just to see what hap- what's happening in the world. <laughs> Just to prove to people that we are a live show. Just want to a get an idea show. what's going on out there. It's once a week, you know, like to check and see what's happening in the rest of the world. No, but thank God, things, things are good. Things are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Live show, a, we always welcome, you know, we always welcome the feedback of our our listeners. We still debate, you know, should we record this portion and just post this as a podcast like others do? Um, do we continue to meet live and banter and talk about what's going on in our lives and be very contemporary because we're live so yeah literally yeah. what's going on in the world right now is our is our subject aaron judge signed a nine-year deal with the yankees for 360 million something like that nine years is a long time nine yeah. years nine yeah. years you know hopefully a long time. hopefully you're a rabbi your drushes get better over the nine years but if you're an athlete of any kind how do you know you're going to perform at that level over the nine years yeah and what happens if you don't are you can they kick you out of the contract? Can they break your contract? If you're, I'm if you're sure, not doing I'm sure well? it's out. Their clauses and outs, but performance. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Do you think he wants to give Meiser to Boca Raton Synagogue? I'm just wondering, what do you do with all that money? $360 million. That is a lot of money. Yeah, it's you a know, lot of money. It's, it's a lot. A lot. Of money. We have a, there's a Moodham event coming up. Amudim is a great organization in New York. Every year they do a fundraiser. Uh, recent years, they've done an online amazing fundraiser. Our good friend, Yemi Schechter puts it together for them. And I've had the privilege of the last uh, couple of years to participate interviewing Rav Schechter. This year I did a little something different. Yami asked me, could they clip together some segments best of Behind the Bima? So we had mm. listener feedback and we uh, have I don't know, eight or 10 clips with a little introduction to each one of uh, listener feedback. So pay attention. We'll, we'll post it on Behind the Bima after the Amudim event, but pay attention to uh, who was chosen as some of the highlight, some of the best clips, best conversations, best moments on Behind the Bima. Who would you want to hear? If you think back on the, I think this is episode 108, 109. Mm. We're nearing 100 episodes. They're all good. In fact, there was someone walking out of shul tonight after, or actually right before Myron. I said, how you doing? He just had some surgery on his on his face, on his eye. And he says, you know what? I used to listen to the news before I go to sleep. But, you know, I, I realize you have so many episodes. I wanted to catch up. So he's been going through every one of our shows. Really? Yeah, it's and great. he says it's great because it puts me to bed right before. <laughs> we have that ability. We just we, 
Listen, every time I meet an anesthesiologist, <laughs> yeah. whenever I meet an anesthesiologist, I say you and I are in the same business, the same line of work. No question. Well, that was this, the famous line from Behind the Beam when we spoke to uh, the Sandman. I said, uh, you know, you and Rabbi Goldberg have the same. <laughs> you both put a, you take to the mound and you put him to sleep. That's that's the uh, put him to sleep. That's true. Maybe the no, Sandman, but, Sandman, Mario Herrera might be one of the one of the highlights. The... Never know. David Gold says his favorite episode was Rabbi Eli Stefanski. Eight minutes. Interesting. Yeah. A life changing uh, moment for some of us. That was a life changing interview. Of all yeah. the interviews we've done, Rabbi Brody, they were life changing in that people shared their inspiration, their insights, but. In the middle of that interview, you went on your computer and signed up for the DAF, and you haven't stopped or slowed down since. Yeah, you, you know, you know, what's interesting is that I was thinking about um, your your uh, you know you said before how was your week, and and part of my week now is going to this Smichas Chaver program, which I now I understand is taking place in communities all over the place, and uh, yeah, obviously we're we're we've just started a new sugya, a new uh, topic, and it's it's really fascinating. I'm learning things that obviously I thought I knew, I did not really know that well. It's clear I did not know. And there was one part in, in, in the middle. I don't know if you could tell, but I was sitting right in front of you. I'm sitting right right to the left. I saw you. But but I had I had a little little uh chumash open there because I was so paranoid. I had till 10 a.m. to take this chumash rashi test. So this is like a whole new part of my life. Motze Shabbos, I always take it right after, but I just didn't feel like I was ready. Right. And after the high of last week, where I got a 92, the highest grade I've ever gotten. Got a 42 on the one this week. So okay, but you know very what? sobering. You very, you know. But you took it. And for our listeners, Rabbi Brody's referring to the fact that the uh there is a halachic requirement. Many people don't even know it is a halachic requirement to um to uh finish to read the parsha two times with a commentary every week. And Rabbi Brody's not only doing that, but he's actually voluntarily taking a test on it every week. It's not hard. obligated, no degree, just purely voluntary. But I love that you just admitted that grade you got, and it doesn't matter. You showed up. You took the test. I feel like I'm back in high school. The only difference is back then I actually did get a 42. doesn't <laughs> matter. You took the test. Yeah, it counted then. You showed up. You took the test. Canada, 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 Canada. Now. Anyone else what? weigh in? Feel free. Our live audience, feel free to put a post in the comments. Who else would you consider a highlight that you'd want to hear a highlight clip from? Almost 110 episodes behind the beam. Who are some of the highlight Anyone else have a game-changing moment like Rabbi Brody? At least Stefanski changed his life by joining the what's it called? MDY, and he's actually MDY. coming, and 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 they are going to be doing a CM on uh, the Durham. Going to be doing it Beautiful. in in Florida, South Florida, when Yeshiva break. Outside of Israel, where else is there? South right, Florida, the whole world comes to South Florida for Yeshiva break. No so question, we're going to be the. Yeah, someone asked me, I was at a meeting last night with a visitor from New York. He said, what's it like? Do you do you have to prepare for like weeks, months for Yeshiva week? How does life change down here? Is it like a total, are you like overtaken? Is it, it's like a hurricane coming to town? I so, feel like most people in Florida like to leave that week. Like it's just, it's overwhelming a little bit. You know, let's just well, Florida, we welcome the guests. We love them. We're so happy yeah. people come and we're here to help however we can. But Floridians know, don't try to go out. Don't try to go out to eat. Don't try to find parking. Right. You know, that's not that's not the week to do it. It's not the week to do it. So thank God, good stuff going on. But now we, uh, we have the privilege to welcome Rav Gershon Schusterman, author of mm -hmm. Why God, Why, How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. And uh, my kids saw the guest. I'm like, Abba, H-E double hockey sticks. You can't <laughs> say that word. You can't have that word. But yeah. someone's got a long beard and a blue black hat. It's part of Chabad, so you're allowed to say that word. You're allowed to say that word when you went through what he went through 
the loss of a wife suddenly out of absolutely nowhere, leaving you with 11 children to raise on your own. That's hardcore. So to write a book, Why God, Why, and How to Believe in Heaven, despite, you know, going through that is, it's big. It's big. big. And, it's, uh, you know, we've seen the book and it's, it's, a, it's also uh, on Audible important. for those of us that would like to listen instead of read it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So please uh, take advantage. There are people, a lot of people listening, watching who are going through their own pain. They're going through their own hell and they want to believe in heaven and they want to believe in God. They want to lean into God, but it's hard. So here's somebody who has the credibility given what he's been through to, uh, to be able to articulate a, uh, a vision for it. So it's really an honor to be able to bring him on and without any further ado. Thank you, Rabbi Shustam. We're honored to be joined by Rabbi Gershon Shustam, the author of the new book, Why God? Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. And um, certainly a provocative title, a provocative subject, a difficult subject, and a hard subject to take on. So thank you for letting us go behind the bima with you and your life and this book. Rabbi Shustam, it's great to be together. I'm honored to be here. So let, let's start. Let's start with this. There's so much to get into about your life and the background of this of this book and this important book. And thank you for the writing it. Um, it tells a story that happened a long time ago, 1986, when you were driving home and you got a phone call from your wife, Allah Shalom, who was not feeling well, watching 11 children that day. And uh, you, you can share, we don't want to open old wounds, but share that story that ultimately did not have a, a good ending, a happy ending, it had a tragic, tragic ending. And you wrote this book, about why God and how to how to believe in heaven when you personally raising eleven children on your own so abruptly so overnight you literally went through hell. So my first question is, this is your first book. It happened in 1986. What took so long? Were you processing? Were you not ready to share? Were you working out some of this philosophy and some of your own feelings? Um, did you have all these ideas a long time ago, but you didn't feel the world was ready yet to hear them? What took so long to put this together to share it with the world? All of the above. Um, when my wife passed away, I was 38 years old. I was running a school with 400 kids, uh, 80, 80 staff members, 18 school buses. Um, I did give that up after a few years because I remarried and it, running a school and running a new marriage, each one requires more time than the 24 hours and I figured out that I can find somebody to take over the school, but I didn't find anybody to take over my family. So that, that was the best decision under the circumstances. But after that, I still had 11 kids had to, with my new wife, God bless her, raise them. Uh, and once I was no longer the director of the Hebrew Academy and in the system, quote, I actually had to pay tuition. Hmm. And I didn't, it, it was tough and I had to make a living. I had to, in that area, I had to reinvent myself for another source of Parnosa. Um, I did give, you know, the parent body of the school, the Hebrew Academy was not a from parent body, maybe 20%, maybe stretching at 25%, I'm talking in 1986, considered themselves uh, Orthodox, the rest were Elimshah, conservative, reform, unaffiliated, but they wanted a good secular education, and they'll take the, the Hebrew education, which was good as well. Uh, we refer to it as we made sure that big day Esav were chamudos so that Yaakov can get the brachas, and that's what we did. Um, uh, but the, the people knew my wife 
personally, she taught for 16 years and she had a lot of kids who went through her class and stayed in touch with her after that. I recently, literally within the last month, found out uh, you guys are in, Boston, in Baltimore, Boca right? Boca so Raton, I'm not going to drop the name of the hush of a person uh, who I spoke to about, uh, who I'm speaking about now. He was uh, his 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 daughter who recently got engaged was staying at a, fr a friend's house in um, in Miami, and was inquiring about who she is and where she comes from and what. Her name was Rachaleo, was the same name as my wife. And she came and she said, and she said, well, that's an interesting name because my friend knew my first wife. And she said, I'm named after my father's second grade teacher. Wow. I hadn't known, I hadn't known that. And then wow. I called him up and tracked him down. That must've been a source of such comfort for you. It was a, a source of comfort. I, I know, I know of a dozen, uh, maybe 15 uh, names after my wife, but this was a student uh, not related, but deeply touched. So she had a profound influence on her students, on her, the parents of her students and so on. Um, but the parents were shocked. You know, we're being invited into a new uh, environment. They call it orthodoxy. I don't care for the term, but observant Yiddishkeit, where Friday night tish, a Friday night meal with a family, uh, add something that you can't get anyplace else. Um, and they were being introduced to the warmth of Yiddishkeit, and then boom, all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the Rebetzin passes away, the rabbi is left with 11, again, I don't want to talk on, people, on people's hearts, because it was 36 years ago, uh, but, you know, Yosemim, and the first few years were... Uh, rather challenging shall we put it mildly they wanted answers how old, how old were the age you were 38 and your wife was 36 what were, what were the ages of the 11 children how old the oldest and the youngest the oldest was 14 uh, the bachar was bar mitzvah and the youngest were 16 month old twins wow and they, they themselves must have experienced it so differently you know even though they're all children of the same mother her loss must have impacted them in radically different ways Absolutely. Uh, to this day, they, they 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 their relationship with that period is profoundly different. The four, the sixteen-month-old twins uh, uh, don't have a conscious memory of their mother. Uh, I would assume that psychologically, uh, they have they bonded with their mother, and that gave them the early uh, sixteen-month years. Uh, 16 months of the motherly security but after that they it took two years till i remarried and they were young enough to bond easily whereas the older ones adolescents and teenagers uh, it, it's a, it is a little bit more challenging so um she passed away uh, dalad nissen april 13th 86 uh in, Jul in july and august i gave a lecture series for the parent body, seven weeks each, um, on the subject of why bad things happen to good people. Um, I have a tr transcript of then, and when I look at my book and I look at the transcript, um, there's a, it is the same fundamentals because I didn't create anything new. And it's, it's all 
the traditional Jewish view, but had I written it when I was 40 years old, I couldn't have because I didn't have the time. And it's only in, in the recent years after I've celebrated my 39th birthday uh, 30 plus times, um, uh, I was in, in, in how I spend my 24 hours, I had more luxury to do it. And I was challenged to actually put it on paper and the ultimate, if I can be so candid, uh, after meaning to write the book for, uh, actively, uh, I've been collecting information and I have files and like photo stats and notes, uh, 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 a ton of that. But when I started to actively want to write the book, it didn't move. I couldn't get it. I actually went to a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, a traditional Yid, and I spent an hour with him. He probed this, he probed that, nothing. Um, and we parted ways. Two weeks later, I called him up. Can we try one more time? We tried one more time. I can repeat. We tried this, he tried that, he probed this, he probed, garnished. All right, we failed. As I was walking out, he's walking me to the door. He says, Rabbi, tell me, if you are to die tomorrow, how would you feel about not having written this book? So the uh, stiffer within me uh, said, well, if I'd be dead, I wouldn't be worried about that. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I, I didn't say it. I, I kept, I bit my tongue and I said, interesting point. At that moment, I didn't actually take it seriously. But next morning I woke up, that sentence came back and the following day and the following day. And after two weeks, I said, this is the time. If not now, when? And I spent two, two and a half years working hard on it. I, I felt uh, very proud of myself. I can write this book by myself. I found out that I can't. I got myself a writing coach. I got myself editors. And uh, can I interrupt for one second, Sarah Bashustaman? I'm 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 blown away by that story and your candidness and transparency in sharing it. And I want to say thank you because um, we have another podcast called Out of the Shadows, dealing with issues of mental health. And there's such a stigma around going for therapy, going for help, admitting that we can't do everything on our own. And the fact that you, this author, accomplished Rav so easily share that yeah i made an appointment i went to a psychiatrist i kept coming back for a couple sessions i took what he said seriously i got a coach for writing we don't have to think that we can do it all alone and we have incredible resources who can help us and i want to thank you for that honesty and, and candidness to to share that and and to reflect how helpful it was because you've now gifted us this book without which that breakthrough might not have happened and that that book coming from you is so important because others there are other people who could write a book about bad things happening to good people and why God, but maybe they didn't, they didn't lose a wife at 36 years old, leaving 11 children. Only, only somebody who's, who's walked through hell can write about heaven in the way that you did. And that's why it's so important that you broke through that wall to gift us this book, to be able to talk about these things from a position of much, much more credibility than others. So thank you for, for persevering and, and breaking through and doing it. Could, could you go back for a moment and, and just share with our, our listeners a little bit more the story of, of what happened? The fact that you, so shortly after, were ready 
to address why bad things happen to good people is in itself extraordinary. Maybe that was part of your own therapy. But could you could you tell everybody what what happened that Sunday morning in 1986? Um, I lived in we lived in Long Beach, California, which is about 28 miles from Los Angeles. And every Sunday morning, I went to Los Angeles. I drove into Los Angeles to give a shear in Chasidus for the older Bachram and the yeshiva. Um, and, you know, from, probably from 7.30 to 8.30, then I daven Chakras in Los Angeles. We didn't have uh, any kosher stores in Long Beach. We had supermarkets that had stuff with an OU, but uh, if you wanted something called Yisrael, you got to buy it in Los Angeles. I'd do a little shopping and drive back to Long Beach. On my way driving back to Long Beach, I got a call on my... I can't call it a cell phone because cell phones didn't exist in 1986. I would say my attache case phone, because the early cell phones were you had to carry an attache case. It was, it was a gun, a big, a big deal. But running to school and I had to be running around. I, I needed to be accessible, so I had an an attache case phone. And my wife called me, and from it was obvious from the third word that she was in some kind of a serious distress. I, all I can do is say, I will rush home as soon as possible. And I might have uh, speeded over the limit a little bit or a lot, but I came home and when the door opened, I saw her and we immediately deputized our oldest son who was home, who was 12 years old. Uh, he's going to um, be the, be the, older brother sitter for what was going on. And by the way, that very morning, uh, the, the Hebrew Academy had the uh, pre-Pesach program, and many of our children performed in that. Uh, it was K to four. So many of the kids, our, our family performed in some of those little programs. My wife also was an accomplished piano player. So she went to the Hebrew Academy to, uh, to accompany the the performances with her piano playing, uh, but on the way back she started feeling unwell, um, and I got home. Uh, we rushed into the car. Uh, we drove to the nearest hospital, which is a very memorial hospital of Long Beach, straight into the emergency room. Um, they left me out in the lobby. I called the Rebbe's office, gave over a report what's happening, asked for a bracha, and, and the, Rebbe's the Rebbe should have his concern on us. Um, I, had, I had a tillum in my car, I took out the tillum, and I was saying tillum. Less than an hour later, the doctor comes out, and you know, that famous line, Rabbi, we did everything we were able to, but she passed away. And, um, my first thought was, uh, this is not really happening. Uh, my second thought is, possibly it is. And if it's true, then this is my opportunity to put everything that I have believed in, everything that I taught, and everything that I've preached into action. Am I up to it? And that's where I left the question at that moment. The why question is built in. Um, 
before we get to, before we get to the why, which is the crux we want to talk about in your book and what an important topic. How, how does one go home and tell eleven children who had a healthy mother that morning that she's no longer here? Uh, to say it simply, you do what you have to do. For me, it was sink or swim time. Hmm. I had a lot of responsibilities. I my character allowed me to put my personal feelings aside and address what has to be what is in front of me. Uh, yes, the, the scene at home, uh, I, I wouldn't repeat. It was the careless of Rakam, like Matantara, but it wasn't a happy event. Um, friends came over. We had, you know, friends, the staff fellow Lubavitchers, they came over, the wives came over, uh, and we had to, you know, what can I say? There was a Leviah next day in New York, and everything that goes into that, uh, including being interviewed by the police to make sure when a person passes away uh, or get in, she passed away in the hospital, but the, the catalyst didn't start in the hospital they have to verify that there was no foul play or anything of that type. Then it's Sunday. Sunday, I don't know, maybe Brooklyn, New York, or uh, Miami, which is heavy Jewish uh, communities, they have a relationship with the coroner and they can release the body quickly. In Long Beach, California, that wasn't so simple. But we worked these things through. And um, not all the children flew to New York, uh, the 16-month-old uh, the six uh, to, to the six-year-old didn't, and he to this day resents the fact that he considered himself mature enough to go, and we had to draw the line someplace. But so it is. Um, we came back. There was shiva in 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 California, and it was a busy shiva. My kids, uh, some of them went to the Hebrew Academy, some of them went to the Torah Semis in Los Angeles. They came. Classrooms came. Their, their, their classmates all came. Um, and it was a time to, uh, you know, one of the Pirushim on uh, what, Igred uh, um, Evla Stimusa, or I don't know if I'm saying it exactly, the, the reward of going to a house of Shiva is the silence. And there's a number of interpretations. One is that the people should be silent and not blurt out a lot of the, let's call it banalities that people speak because they're uncomfortable in a house of Shiva and they want to say something, uh, but the, what they want, what, what's good, their brain is not exactly engaged. In it. And there's, a, you know, there have been articles written about that. Uh, uh, Besides the din that the, the, the people who are Menachem don't speak before the Oval uh, indicates that he wants to speak. And if he doesn't speak, and then then it's silent and it's awkward and it's meant to be awkward. But one of the Purushim is the silence of the uh, mourner uh, that he doesn't uh, yell and scream and turn himself and everybody else off. Um, and Vayidem Aaron means Aaron was silent and he submitted, even though the Kotzker says Vayidem Aaron means 
that he was full of fury and and uh, he just shut it down mm. and i must have vacillated between the two but we survived that and it took a while it took months it took years um and we remain standing right, brody wow i'm just wondering when you look at the title of the book you know why god why how to believe in heaven when when it hurts like hell is this book meant to be read by someone that's going through a challenge right now or is it really the story of the jewish people thinking about this week's parsha last week's parsha the parsha before every single person throughout jewish history has gone through hell and and, and i'm just wondering it, is there something in the book or is there something that you think as a jewish community we should be doing better to prep people for unfortunately what seems to be inevitable that we're just going to go through some big challenges that we're not prepared for well first thing is we pray that we don't have to go through any more challenges amen and if they should bring mashiach and Yisrael will be out of the challenging department being challenged department amen. uh so you've asked you, you've asked a number of details uh one uh the book was written to give people a framework to understand grief and to understand understand Soros. You know, there's different words in English. If I had a thesaurus, I'd give you 12. Uh, problems, Soros, crisis, tragedy. Uh, and there's a sliding scale of the same event to one person by the nature of his character is a problem to another person it's a crisis and to the third person the same i don't want to say less significant thing but to that person by the nature of his character it's a tragedy and it has to be dealt with not on the basis of my in my analysis of what really is going on it has to be related to how that person feels about it uh, so while the book uh, seems to be dealing, by, at least by its title, with, with tragedies, uh, it gives an overview of all sorts of challenges that people have as individuals. Um, if you would have asked me two months ago, just when the book first hit the market, can this book work for a person who is actually in a state of active grief from a certifiable tragedy, I would have said no, no. Hmm. It, 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 it's a piece of paper. As, as eloquently as I would like to think it was written, it's still, it's, it's, it's a piece of paper. It's not, it's not heart to heart. Um, it's good to read it, you get a frame, framework and you deal with it. Turns out, I am pleasantly and humbly surprised to say, even in the two months, I know of a number of real situations where people were tragically uh, accosted by life and by nature and by death and by Hashem. And uh, I got a call from a, a, an acquaintance of mine who lives in California. He lost a grandchild, a four-month-old grandchild, 
and he told me that his daughter-in-law and son were inconsolable um, and they looked at a few books they tasted it they spit it out and then he had the book uh, they saw it on the table they picked it up uh, the mother of this baby wouldn't give it away for four days and she said she said to her father-in-law this book speaks to me hmm. during during her shiva of a four-month-old child uh and i know other stories similar to that so apparently there's something in it that works uh not only for for the long term but even as first aid and at at the time of need you mentioned hashem so that's the big question right today people have slow Wi-Fi and they lose faith in Hashem. Hmm. Today, somebody uh, sits in traffic, they miss their flight, and they lose faith in Hashem. And, and you suddenly and abruptly lost your wife, leaving you with 11 children, and, and you never wavered in your faith of Hashem, and that's obviously what the book is about, to give that strength to others similarly. So where, where does that come from? How do you believe in Hashem who would take your wife at 36 years old, leaving 11 children without a mother? Where is God? How could you believe in such a God who would do something so cruel? I'm asking because obviously for the people who go through pain, that's the number one question. I actually was just with someone who was telling me how their cousin is agnostic and their cousin um, said, I, I don't believe in a God. There's so much pain in this world. There's so much loss and suffering in this world. I don't want to believe in a God who would either cause that or even just allow that. But that makes no sense. So I choose not to believe in God. So how did you maintain your faith? How did you raise your 11 children, even though they didn't have a mother, to continue to have their father in heaven with Hashem? How do you how do you encourage others who are going through crisis to still maintain their faith in Hashem? Okay. First of all, uh, two years later, they did have my new wife, and who was a wonderful mother to them. And uh, even though, as I said, the 16-year-olds were able to bond differently than the adolescents, uh, but they did get a lot from her, and it took a while till they worked it out, and uh, unity uh, reigned again. The question is, the first thing is, um, if there is a God, then he is in charge of everything that goes on. Like it or not, He's in charge. Um, you know, in, in the context of raising a family, a parent has to be responsible for the welfare of the family. Uh, and not everything that a parent does for the child is appreciated by the child. Uh, whether it's a six-year-old who is being denied a candy or, or whether a 16-year-old who is going through a rebellious period. Um, if the parent has established credibility prior to the, that particular day's crisis, uh, then the child will reluctantly submit and say, my parent has demonstrated he knows me, he cares for me, and uh, even though I don't understand him, why he's, shall we say, imposing a certain family structure 
that I want to circumvent. Um, but he has demonstrated who uh, his authority and he has demonstrated his, that the authority is not coming out of dictatorship, but from parenthood. Uh, I think about Hashem very much in the same way. Uh, it's a side point, but it's also a critical point. Um, if you study Jewish history, uh, you know, the Holocaust was the ultimate tragedy of tragedies. And it happened, I was born a few years after World War II. My parents uh, were there and, you know, people, you know, that generation went through, uh, talk about uh, when it hurts like hell, they went to hell and and many of them didn't come back from hell and then ended up going to Gan Eden through the crematorium. And some of them uh, went to the crematorium singing on imamin. Uh, ultimately, one needs to know that there's more to Hashem than we can possibly understand. If Hashem was perfectly understandable to you and me, he would have to be a very small Hashem, a very small God that you and I can agree that we can approve of him. When he, and, if, and, and, and that's not the God that we need. We need the God who's bigger than that. Uh, God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's creator, creator of the universe. You know, in, in Sukhi de Zimra, we talk about uh, the wonders of Hashem in nature. Today, nature has gotten bigger. With the Webb telescope, we can see figuratively uh, 13.9 billion light years ago. And, we, and it's awesome how big the nature is. And that God created you and me and every one of the now I'm told 8 billion people on the world and not only is he so great but he is so personal he relates to each person as an individual and when you put those things together uh, you say I am one little creature of Hashem's huge creation and Hashem cares for me too and he's doing something that I don't understand um, and I don't appreciate um, will I ever understand it not necessarily some things become more understandable in retrospect uh, but many things don't but whether I understand it or not uh, I believe everything that Hashem does is purposeful even if I can't figure out the purpose. When when you taught this just a, when you taught this just a few months after she passed away, do you think that you were talking to yourself as much as you were talking to the students, or that you did you really feel that in that moment and believe it, or was part of the teaching it right away also part of speaking to yourself and being machazik yourself and getting yourself to this place instead of a place of anger? No, I I would like to believe that I was. It was Dvaram HaYesim in Alev to the extent that now I had a new Lev. Because until until that event, uh, notwithstanding that I was 
I did many levias and many visited many people in, in, in the hospital and in hospice and in their shiva home, and I comforted them. And I may have said similar things, uh, but it, I have, in retrospect, I realized it wasn't yoytze from the same level. It didn't come from the same heart because my heart was immature. Not ein chacham kibal in a sayin. I had known a sayin in actual life of what a tragedy means, and therefore I wasn't a chacham. I was a guy struggling to try to understand it. Uh, but I, I worked it. I was working it through. I, 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 as I said, I believe that I believe. I said to myself, I believe this is for Hashem for a purpose, even though I don't understand the purpose. Will I be able to live up to what I'm saying? And I worked on it and worked on it, and not, continue to work on it. Emuna is not you either have it or you don't. Emuna is something that needs to constantly be nurtured and it waxes and it wanes uh, and you need to refresh it. Um, Hashem is a friend. And if you have a relationship with a friend, uh, it turns out to be a very reliable friend. Uh, At all times love a friend and a brother will blossom in a time of tzara. And the Gemara says the Rea, the friend referred to numerous times in Mishle is Hashem. Hmm. But if you have a friend who you don't let into your home and you don't let him into your heart, he wants to be your friend, but you got to let him in. And it's hard to, uh, when a person has a crisis or a tragedy, to go out in your front door and put up a sign, I need a friend now, anybody available. It doesn't work that way. You have, in, in relation to Hashem, you have to have nurture an ongoing relationship with Hashem so that if one has a crisis or a tragedy, he can lean on Hashem. The ultimate answer is, the ultimate comfort is if I'll digress for a moment, remind me if I don't get back here. What are the other options? The other options is there is no God. If there is no God, there is no tragedy. There's no difference of, of, of tsunami who takes 250,000 people, no difference if a person loses his wife at the age of 36, or you drop a piece of bread and it lands on the buttered side. It's all random. It's all, excuse the expression, a crapshoot. And uh, there's nothing to be angry about. Who are you going to be angry about? Uh, it, you know, the, the 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 jungle animals in the Serengeti kill each other every day. And the, the survival of the fittest uh, works there. Uh, nobody says it's terrible. This is the nature of animals. We're human beings, and if we if we don't have a god, we are no different than the animals in the Serengeti. It is survival of the fittest. Um, so, and if if life ha if life has no if there is no God, life has no meaning. 
And if life has no meaning, tragedy has no meaning. And we just live in a nihilistic society, in a nihilistic world. And uh, whoever yeah. said, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow you may die, has a good point. On the other hand, if life has meaning, uh, then exactly how God created the world, I don't know. But I know that 3,300 plus years ago, Hashem revealed himself at Sinai in a unique way to the Jewish people and gave the world, uh, gave us 613 commandments. And it is through that that we develop a relationship with our God on an ongoing basis from the moment uh, we wake up and say, Modani, kiss the mezuzah, put on tefillin, and go to work and keep godly consciousness in our work to keep us on the straight and narrow and not to cheat and not to uh, things of that type. So it's the ongoing relationship that is constantly nurtured that gives us the strength to find Hashem in the Torah. And that seems like a paradox. If Hashem is in charge, that means Hashem willed this tragic event. And at the very same time, he is with us and feeling our pain. Did it change your relationship with the Rebbe? That the Rebbe davened on her behalf and Hashem said no? Was the Rebbe, with, how did the Rebbe help you following the tragedy? Uh-oh. You said this is an, an, an honest conversation? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, um, um, after my wife passed away, while I was still in the hospital, I had to wait for that above-mentioned interview with the police before they would let me go home. Um, I called back the Rebbe's office, and the, uh, the secretary, the Rebbe had a number of secretaries. Uh, one of the secretaries happened to be my brother-in-law, Rabbi Benjamin Klein, who is now Oliver Sholem. And I told him to tell the Rebbe that it's after the fact. He didn't tell it to me then, but he told me it months later um, that when he went into the Rebbe to inform the Rebbe that my wife had passed away and the Rebbe knew me personally, knew that my wife personally, knew my wife's family. He was to the extent that he was close to certain families. Uh, he was quite close to my wife's family. Um, And my brother-in-law described to me the Rebbe's reaction. A, a serious pall came over the Rebbe's face. Um, he lifted his hands. I don't know if you can see it. And he, like when you have a question, he didn't say a word, but he said, why? He didn't, I'm putting in words. And again, why? And then the Rebbe put on his face a, 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 a image of pain and threw his hands down. And you can put in words uh, to that if you want to. The words that I would put would not be very nice. I wouldn't attribute it to the Rebbe. But uh, which meant to me, that the Rebbe couldn't come to terms with it either. 
and to in a, some strange way that is comforting hmm. it wasn't that i'm a little guy i don't understand uh, the rebbe doesn't understand and the rebbe is not at peace with this and the rebbe you know in subsequent times the rebbe spoke about when tragedies happened in crown heights the rebbe cried to hashem in, in in private and in public why why do these do these things happen it's not given to man to understand it's not given to man to understand because hashem transcends understanding and also and i mentioned this in the book if we were able to understand we would accept and the abister doesn't want us to accept tragedy the abister wants us to fight for for goodness and kindness that's why uh you know that's why so many uh, good people have organizations to help people going through crisis and going through tragedy with finances with food with you know, these are the kinds of things that's uh, at a certain point we realize that the, as rabbi jonathan sack said the question is not why that is god's business the question is what are we supposed to do now and did the, the rebbe write your letters was the rebbe still in touch afterwards how, how did the rebbe help you through it uh, the rebbe number one uh, wrote a condolence letter to the family uh which i i i, I won't use the term it was a standard uh um condolence letter even though many other people got similar letters but it was a letter written specifically to, to me and to my children number one um i will add again like human interest prior to my wife's passing i had been asked a month before to speak at the annual neshe chabad convention which is in crown heights uh usually the weekend before shavuos starts thursday and shabbos and they have a dinner this was 1986 not like they have today and it wasn't the shluchas convention it was neshe chabad from all over america and they asked me to speak i don't you know they, uh and then my wife passed away i had every right and i would have been totally forgiven if i said sorry i'm gonna have to pass this year uh but i thought that the right thing to do is to keep that appointment and uh use it to honor uh my wife and i spoke about my wife's name was Rachel Leah, and who was Rachel and who was Leah? It's it's in these weeks Cedrus, so it's a current event for today, uh, and, and they're different characters and they're different roles, and how my wife was a Rachel and Anna Leah. She had both names, and uh, uh, honored her. I honored her that way. Um, Rabbi Brody, you have a follow-up? Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, Rabbi Goldberg mentioned, um, he asked you about your children earlier and the reaction they had and how it was when you went to go and speak to them. But I'm just wondering, do you find that children react better or worse to a crisis? In other words, because they're younger, they they don't understand the concepts of Emuna in the same way that an adult might. 
is it is is it you know how do they how did how did they, how do they react to, to such a to such a crisis children are little adults and adults are very often little children um I'm not a psychologist. Um, I, I didn't completely answer your previous question about uh, uh, references to what the Rebbe wrote to oh, me. Sorry. You know, no, no, it's my fault. I, I so I, I when I went in to New York for the convention for the for for the Chabad convention, I had two days that I can actually think. And I wrote, then I wrote a letter to the Rebbe. One of, I remember distinctly, one of the letters that I wrote to the Rebbe, one of the points I wrote to the Rebbe was, why are the kids acting so normal? Mm. They just lost a mother. How come they're acting so normal? Uh, little did I know that they too had the resilience and wanted to go back to a normal pattern where they go to school every day and they do their homework uh, instead of sitting home sucking their thumb, uh, which the 16 year olds can get away with it, but not the older ones. Uh, but fast forward the next year and the next year and the next year, and the times that I got a call from the principal of the school that they were going to, this son who was sweet and kind and docile and is suddenly acting acting up in a way that uh, shocked his principal. They are people, and like uh, sometimes we cover up, but there were things going on uh, underneath, underneath that was uh, uh, little volcanoes. Uh, we tried to have a <laughs> group therapy session with the whole family, and we asked friends who are in the mental health field. And they said, oh, this is too much for me. I'm going to get my professor at UCLA. And the whole family went down to the professor at UCLA, a wonderful Jewish woman. And after 15 minutes, she said, mm -mm, this is too big for me. And wow. She, <laughs> but, but I did write to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe gave me an interesting answer. Um, the Rebbe said, when the to gives a person a mission, he certainly gives them the strength to fulfill the mission uh, appropriate, uh, properly or, or appropriately, um, which the Rebbe pointed out, which means besimcha v'tuv levov. You can do it with joy and, and, good, and, and good heart. And then the Rebbe added, especially when this includes carrying the role of a mother as also to the extent possible. Mm. And I have to tell you, I was not happy with that answer. I wanted sympathy. And I got an adult marching order. Carry on. Uh, it took me a f probably two months before I can integrate the Rebbe's answer personally. Uh, I know the Rebbe knows me and I know the Rebbe was kind and caring. Uh, 
and I had to accept that the Rebbe looks at me as an adult, not as a child. Uh, I, 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 did, I did have maturity to a certain extent, but as I said, inside every adult is a little child. We all meet that little child every once in a while. Uh, and that little child wanted uh, uh, empathy from the Rebbe. And, you know, reading between the lines, you might find it there, but on the surface it was, you're an adult, you have responsibilities, take care of them. And I will add an anecdote, which is appropriate for this question. That is, I have a son who is now, uh, he's, he's a shliach in Atlanta. And 12 years ago, a little more than 12 years ago, I know the date because it was shortly before a certain ptira uh, that took place. This was a few weeks before. Um, my son says to me, you know, Tati, can we go out and have a schmooze? You know, I said, fine. It's one of the things I came for. I was hoping we can have a schmooze about something. Um, and he starts talking about his cousin, his first cousin. I was a few years younger than him. A wonderful guy, a great character, a shliach in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Uh, he has a Chabad house. He has a shul. And as the family knew and his community knew, he was dying from lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And it was getting worse and worse. And they did all sorts of uh, different kinds of uh, procedures from surgeries to chemo, whatever, whatever is done. And he was losing the battle. And my son was very upset. And his question was why this is happening. How is he supposed to understand this? And I, as his father and a couple of years older than him, in my mind, I was saying, well, I'm going to tell him this and I'm going to tell him that. And I'm going to tell him this and that. And, when he finished speaking, before I opened my mouth, I said to myself, everything that I have on my mind to tell him, he knows that. He has smicha. He's a rabbi in the community. He knows the very same things that I'm going to tell him. So why should I tell him something that he already knows? Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, Eliyahu, do you want an answer or do you want a hug? Mm. He was shocked to hear that come out of my mouth. Frankly, so was I. And he, and he looked at me, his eyes teared up and he says, I want a hug. And I gave him a hug like I haven't given him for 30 years before that. Mm. And then the conversation was over when we moved on. When a person is in a crisis, he's not a Kaylee or doesn't want an answer. He wants a hug. <coughs> he wants the pain to go away. And whatever you can do to help the pain go away, that's what he needs. Hmm. Uh, you know, adults uh, don't usually go around saying, I really need a hug today. So they couch that challenge and that pain in, oh, if only I had an answer my problems will be solved. No, 
that these kinds of problems don't get solved with an answer because the answer, uh, if it's a good answer, it goes to the mind. But the question is not coming from the mind. The question is coming from the heart or the question is coming from the gut. So the first therapy is to address the gut with emotional support, religious support, whatever, whatever kind of support the person needs. The Altenachameu, the Shah Mesi Mutal, the fun of don't comfort a person while his deceased is lying before him. Uh, you got to have the distance so that rational conversation uh, will provide support. At the, at, the, at the time of crisis, you, that is almost inoperative. Give support and give support again and again until the person is able uh, to move to the next stage. Uh, that's fantastic advice. Rabbi Shustman, we're sending you a big hug and we thank you for letting us go behind the bima, for sharing your uh, wisdom and, and, and unfortunate, tragic life experience that you've hopefully turned into uh, chizik and support, comfort yeah. for others. And uh, let me encourage people to read the book. It's uh, important and inspiring and we wish you only the best. Thank you for uh, going behind the bima and sending you a very big hug. Thank you. Rabbi Brody, take away thoughts. Wow. wow. Powerful conversation. What a, not an easy one. Not a, He's been through a lot. I can't, can't, can't even begin to imagine. Can't imagine what the you, kids felt. I think felt the last thing he said was the most powerful to me, yeah. that conversation with his son. But sometimes we think we have to have the answers or explanations. Sometimes we rush in to say something smart. Yeah. And sometimes what the other person really needs is a hug. They want to feel heard. They want to feel validated. They want a hug. That's yeah. it somebody to know they exist, somebody to acknowledge their suffering, someone to validate their question or challenge or yeah. search for Hashem in difficult circumstances. Sometimes people just need a hug. We try to do more than that. We hurt them. And if we just give a hug, we're helping them. You know, it's funny. I, there's so many times where you get a phone call from someone and you know it's going to be an issue that they just need to, they have a problem and I guess they're calling you because you have a solution. And I can't tell you how many times, because I don't know what the solution is. I'm not. If it's if it's a real serious problem, I just tell them to call you. But but many times, what will happen is that after a couple of minutes, they'll say that the conversation ends, and, and they say, uh, "Wow, that was amazing! Thank you so much." And I really, I didn't say one thing; I just listened. Right. Just and listened. I think that's the most. Sometimes we just need someone to listen to us. And yeah, uh, our next out of the shadows episode is about trauma. It's coming out soon, and uh, a lot of conversation about that. Yeah. Often part of the therapy for people who've been through trauma. Trauma could mean, you know, a messy divorce, product of a messy divorce. Trauma can mean abuse, physical, sexual, emotional. Trauma can mean many things. Trauma can mean you're in a bad car accident. Trauma can mean a lot of things. Um, and what I learned in, and I'm learning in preparing this episode is that in many cases, part of the um, treatment for trauma is just listening, is right. letting someone tell their story, is letting yeah. someone emote, letting someone share is uh, letting someone get that out. So, um, yeah, that was. I thought that was very powerful. Very powerful. powerful. And I like what you said about the hug. I think that's also such a. It's a, it's a lost art, you know. Although well, Corona, see, Corona separated us, we weren't yeah. allowed to hug. I'd rather right. I'd rather hug than shake a hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be okay if I never shook a hand again. Yeah. But I would never be okay if I couldn't hug. Yeah. 
You know, it's that's great. No, I'm saying you walk into shul, you see someone, you know, you just, you could tell someone needs a hug. You give a hug. It's, it's nice. It is. You know, it when you're going for that hug, sometimes it can be awkward. Like which side do you hug on and, and the arms and <laughs> no. do you pat? So there's a guy in our shul, Charlie. Yeah. And whenever I see him, I don't see him enough. He's not here enough. But when I go into hug, he always makes me hug him on the right side. Cause he says, when you do that, the heart is touching the heart. You got to hug with the heart touching the heart. Yeah. That, that assumes that he's a, you're as tall as the other guy. With me, it's always okay. weird. It's because <laughs> I'm like on my toes. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to make yeah. this look so it's not so bend weird. Down, the bend down to the other guy's together. bending down. Why don't you carry like a stool around? I should. And, and it's funny, you, you know. In shul, I know what you the, like I, follow the Torah, you walk around shul, you should carry a stool. <laughs> you can I, know what, I know what they feel like because it's like when I go and hug my son, Aton, who's eight. That's <laughs> like, come in here. Or maybe your next Doc Martens. <laughs> exactly. People, after last episode, we talked about your Doc Martens. People wanted to know if they if they have platforms in them. No, they have... just they're just naturally, <laughs> just a naturally big. I was asking if you're wearing them to get a few extra inches. No, <laughs> no. I think I, I not. How do I say? They are Doc Martens that actually do have a lot of height, but these are the standard okay. Doc Martens. They don't have any height, any yeah. more height than necessary. The bottom line is everyone's got to show a lot of love and, and yeah, show feel a lot love. of love. Yeah. I went to a funeral today. It's such a sad funeral. I, I've spoken about this in the Parsha class at Munashir. Yeah. Um, you know, you actually know the person, very special person, uh, Gil Mellon, Dr. Mellon. And um, I never met him until last week. I got a phone call that he lives in Woodfield Country Club, not an observant family, was taking his Judaism much more seriously found our shiram online, started listening, printing out our Parsha perspective right up, would read it at his Shabbos table. And um, always told his daughter, who who he particularly loved learning with, you know, we'll make it to BRS eventually. I want to meet Rabbi Goldberg, studying with him, listening to so much Torah. We'll meet him. And uh, in June, he was diagnosed with a terrible illness. And last week, he had a he had a big stroke. And he was in hospice and a coma. His family called me and said it was, you know, it was a dream to meet. He, he listened and learned. Could you come? Come, of course I'd come. Came and, and he couldn't, he wasn't really conscious, couldn't really respond, though with his eyes closed and paralyzed in half his body. After I did speak to him from the heart, he put out his hand, put out mm. his hand, held his hand. And uh, and then he passed away. Not not that moment, he passed away on on, uh, on Monday. The funeral was today. But it was interesting because I, I, I didn't know him. I didn't know him. Right. Everything right. I learned, I learned at the funeral. I told his family, I said, you know, I only met him in person once and even then I didn't really meet him. But our souls connected. We were at Sinai together. Because if you study Torah with someone, if you're if Torah is the, the language of connection, then your souls are connected, even if you're not physically overlapping. But anyway, I learned that the at the funeral, I think he was 57 years old. I think his mother died in her 40s. So wow. when when he knew he was a neuroradiologist, he knew what was happening to him. He prepared his kids because he went through it himself. So he told them. You know, it'll be unbearably painful and time will help and heal. Um, There's also an amazing line. He was with his family, he was with his wife. And at one point he looked outside and he said, you know, after I'm gone, the world's going to keep going on. And then he stopped and he looked around at his family and he said, but my world is right here. Hmm. It's very powerful. It's powerful lines. Wow. You know, the, the Shlomo Melech said, better to go to a funeral than a, than a party. Go to a party, it's festive, it's joyous, it's fun. But you go to a funeral, you learn something. You know, you sit there and you're moved to want to be better, different, right. family. 
my kids know like if I'm on my way back from a funeral because all of a sudden I start texting them like sappy stuff or I love them or when am I going to see you or you've been. how can we spend more time together? Because right. you know after a funeral, it's you're moved. You're moved to become better. And, and I certainly was from this. Um, but I also learned a very powerful lesson. Don't wait. There's someone you want to meet or a conversation right. you want to have. I have such regrets. This person has been listening for months and reading and listening to have lunch, coffee, get in yeah. touch, come to BRS, join our community, be part of what we have going. Like, um, so it did break my heart, break my heart, broke Sorry. my heart a little bit. Well, if anyone wants to get, uh, I guess, to go out with Rabbi Goldberg, just call me. I'll, I'll take care of you. <laughs> yeah, so hug. people need hugs. People they need do. Hugs. They need yeah. love. But anyway, I thought of that because just, uh, you, know, you could lose you could lose sorry. a parent at a young age, but it doesn't have to define you. He went on to build a beautiful family and lead a beautiful life. So a lot to I, think about from tonight's conversation, Rabbi Schusterman. A lot to digest. Yeah. How to believe in heaven, even when it hurts like heck. That's for my kids in case they're watching. It hurts like yeah. heck. I didn't have the guts to ask him. I was on the edge of my lips, but I didn't ask him. Was there thinking behind the title? Was he concerned that H-E double hockey sticks? I don't. I don't. I don't know that that's even a bad word in today's standards. It doesn't you think about you. Think about what's on. What, you know, people are exposed to. I don't know if that even makes the list anymore. It's true vulgarity. It's and I, I like to listen and learn. World. I don't. I don't. I don't have a commute, and I don't drive often, so I don't really get a chance to listen. Yeah. But when so today I went to the funeral. Sometimes I drive. I listen to a podcast, and it's amazing to me how many of the popular podcasters who are brilliant and have so much insight, yeah. but they can't speak without profanity, vulgarity. They can't communicate their message without. Bombs bursting in air. So um, I don't know why that is. It's I'm saying it used to be. It wasn't even that long ago. People would be like, if they say something in front, they'd be like, oh, it's Rabbi, I'm sorry. They don't say that anymore. No. Those, days, yeah. those days are long gone. No, not even anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Long, long over. Yeah. Long over. In any but, case, it was a powerful conversation, a lot to think about. None of us should know from it. We should all have simchas, only joyous things and happy occasions and Good and inspiring guests. We got great guests coming up, great conversations happening. We're still all okay. davening hard for Chaya Estotila Basari El Tipura. We can't wait yeah. to have Rabbi Moskowitz back, please God, and to share hopefully good news hopefully with him and news. his beautiful family. We miss him terribly. And uh, maybe for next week, I just realized maybe we could have opened up with this because we had some breaking news this week. Big golf tournament to support Israel. A couple of awards were given out. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know how, I don't know how accurate or fair that award was, Rabbi. We're gonna we're gonna we might have to bring on some witnesses. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about that next week. Might have to bring out some eyewitnesses. So we'll prepare the evidence question, <laughs> cross examination, cross examination. Uh, Until I, next time. Yeah. Of course, we welcome your sponsorship. If you enjoy behind the bima, yeah, and you'd like to sponsor, we love your support. The money doesn't come to us personally. It all goes to BRS to help promote our values, our ideals, our Torah. So we'd love your sponsorship. You go to brsonline.org/sponsor brsonline.org slash sponsor until next time stay happy stay healthy and stay holy thank you for listening to behind the bima if you enjoyed the show please subscribe rate and review on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'll see you next week for another peek behind the bima